Okay, I'm going to begin asking you a question. How many of you right now with you somewhere on your person, in your purse, in your pocket, or in your jacket, or whatever, how many of you have a cell phone of some kind with you? Take it out and hold it up if you got a cell phone. Find it in your purse, dig it out. A bunch of you didn't have to look for it. You already got it. You got your Bibles on your cell phones. Yeah, <laughs> light up the light and wave it back and forth, um, right? Most of us have one of these things. Okay, you can put it down. Um, now, <laughs> we're going to pretend that we didn't hear a cell phone go off earlier in the service, right? Because that never happens, right? That happens now and then, doesn't it? You, you, you do something like you go to a funeral or a worship service or a meeting at work or something, and you're like, my phone cannot ring right now, and you forget to put it on silent or airplane mode or whatever, and it rings and it goes off. Um, and, and so let's just say that right now, here we are in the worship service, I know all of you have your plane on, your, your plane, you, you all have a plane? You all have a, a phone on airplane mode or it's on vibrate or something so that it won't go off in the middle of the worship service and nobody would hear it. But let's just say that we're sitting here and I'm preaching and all of a sudden you feel your phone buzzing in your pocket, right? It's a distraction, isn't it? Your phone's buzzing in your pocket and you think, gosh, I wonder who it is. But if I take it out and look at it, everybody will see. You're not supposed to look at your phone. So a lot of you do the whole thing where you have your Bible on your phone so you can like really do text messages and pretend to be spiritual, right? <laughs> I know none of you would do that, but, but um, there are times when you're just unavailable, right? There are times when you have to just say, you know, I'm not taking this phone out of my pocket. I, just whoever it is is going to have to leave a message. They're just going to have to wait. In my life, there are a bunch of times when I am not available. In fact, if you try to call me on my cell phone, the chances are I will not answer it. I would say nine times out of ten, someone calls on my cell phone, I don't answer it. The reason I don't answer it is because, believe it or not, I have not been sitting around all day looking at my phone waiting for you to call. I actually have other things going on, right? So I am almost always either in a meeting or I am uh, engaged in something significant or I'm driving down the road and can't answer or whatever the case. Most of the time, I will not answer my cell phone. If I was sitting with you, I do a lot of counseling. If we're, if we're here in a counseling session and you're pouring out your heart to me and your tears are rolling down your face and you're telling me about all that's going on in your life and all of a sudden my phone rings and I go, oh, excuse me, and you know, I call and talk about my fantasy baseball team with my friend, then chances are you're going to be offended by that, right? So even as a counselor, when I go into a counseling session, a lot of you know this because you've been in counseling with me, that when I, when I come in, I set my stuff down, and I put my phone face up right next to me where I can see it if it lights up, but it is on silent so that it won't interrupt. And if it lights up, if we're counseling and you're in the middle of pouring out your heart and my phone lights up, I'm going to tell you right now so you won't be offended, I am going to look at it. I will stop and look at my phone and 99 times out of 100, I will ignore it and turn back to you. But there are times, even in a counseling session, even in a staff meeting, even in a prayer meeting, there are times where I will take a call. I might say to you, listen, I know you're crying. Here's a tissue. I'll be right back. I need to take this call. And you're going to get all offended and bent out of shape. But so that doesn't happen. Let me tell you why I'm taking that call. There are a few people who have access to me all the time. If my wife needs to get in touch with me, and she calls my cell phone, and I look down, and I see her beautiful face pop up on my screen, 
I will say excuse me to you, and I will go and talk to my wife, just so you know. And I will do the same thing for my kids. Now, to be honest, what I actually have said to all of them is if you ever need to get in touch with me, I will always take your call, but I may ignore it the first time, and if you call right back, I will answer it immediately the second time. No matter what I'm doing, I will take your call because if it's important for you to talk to me, it is important for me to talk to you. That means if you're one of my children or if you are my wife, and someday when my grandkids have phones, I'll probably do the same for them, I will take your call. It's not because your call is necessarily more important than everybody else's call. It's because in my life, you are more important than everybody else. My wife is more important to me than any of you. Sorry, I hope you're not offended. My kids are more important to me than any of you. So I'm going to take their calls. It's by virtue of their relationship with me that they have special access to me. Now, you say, why are you telling me about this? I'm telling you this so that, A, if we're in counseling and I take a call, you won't get mad at me. And B, I'm telling you this because we've been talking for months now about the life of faith, and for weeks we've been talking about how prayer fits into the life of faith. And one of the things that's so important for us to understand as followers of God is that we have special access to God in prayer. By nature of your position as the daughter of a king, by nature of your position as a son of God himself, you have access to God that the rest of the world does not have. You say, wait a minute, do you mean to tell me that if my unsafe friend is in a traffic accident and they're in pain and they're laying on the side of the road and they call out to God, that God's not going to listen to them? No, I'm not telling you that, but I will say that in some way, you have a certain kind of access that the rest of the world does not have. Because the scripture tells us that God is our creator and that every one of us is made in the image of God. So that as people, we are all special to God. We all have value based on who he is and who he has made us to be. He loves all of us, all of his creation. But the scripture also tells us that not every human being is a child of God. Even though we're all the creation of God, the ones who are children of God are the ones who have been adopted into his family. They're the Christians. They're the ones who are followers of Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you have confessed your sin and accepted Christ as your Savior, and you're a follower of Jesus, then you have access to God as his child, the kind of access that nobody else has. In fact, it says in God's word that we have the access to run into his throne room the way a little child has access to run into his daddy's office if he comes to visit him at work, and he will be interruptible. We can come into the throne room of grace where our daddy works and he is sitting on his throne and he will pick us up and put us on his lap and give us his full attention. Is that an amazing thing to think about? We have this access to God and it's called prayer and it's accessible to us as we are followers of Jesus. Now, I want to, we're going to spend this week and next week looking specifically in some details about how that works, but I want to lay this foundation in the book of 1 John. So take your Bibles and turn almost to the back, or take your phones and, and get out of your um, Angry Birds game and move on to 1 John chapter 1. It's not actually chapter 1, it's chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. And we're going to begin looking at this in verse 1, just to lay some foundation. Because I think what John has done for us in 1 John chapter 5 this really kind of summed up what we've been talking about for several weeks now about the life of faith. 
and what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and then it's going to segue perfectly into what we want to talk about today with prayer. So let's begin in 1 John chapter 5, verse 1. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. Now let's stop there. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. So we're trying to differentiate here between people who are, who are just the creation of God, made in his image, and other people who are born of God, who are the child of God. And he's starting to tell us about that difference, and he says, it all begins with those who believe. If you believe that Jesus is the Christ, you're born of God. And we've been talking about this for months, so I hope you've gotten this through your head by now, that to believe in Jesus is more than just giving intellectual assent to the idea of Jesus. It's a relational concept. It means that I put all of my weight in Jesus. I put all of my trust in him, that he is the one who upholds me, and if he fails to uphold me, I will come crashing down. It has more to do with the way I live my life than just what I think intellectually. So whoever believes is born of God. Verse 2, by this we know that we love the children of God. When we love God and observe his commandments. So he's further defining this picture of what it looks like to be a child of God. He's saying we will love other children of God and we will observe his commandments. Obedience and, and faith are like Siamese twins. You never find them separated. Obedience and faith go together. We've been talking about this a long time. Early on in this series on faith, we said that... Um, that doubt is not the opposite of faith. We said that fear is not the opposite of faith. You know what's the opposite of faith? Disobedience. That if we actually believe him, the way the Bible uses the term believe, if we actually put our trust in God, then we will actually do the things he calls us to do. We will live the way he calls us to live. He actually becomes our Lord. And there are a lot of people who are very interested in Jesus as a Savior, the idea that Jesus pays your price and you don't have to pay the price, the idea that you don't have to be punished for your sin because Jesus was already punished and you can live forever and not die and not spend eternity apart from God in hell, that's a very wonderful idea. Jesus, my Savior, I'll take it. It's very easy to get people to agree to that, to let Jesus be their Savior. But Jesus doesn't simply offer to be our Savior. He says, I want to be your Lord and Savior. And Lord and Savior are also inseparable concepts. Jesus says, I will save you. I will set you free from your sin. But you will enter into a relationship with me where I become the Lord of your life. And you'll actually live differently because you're living with me on the throne of your life instead of living with yourself on the throne, which is what you've been doing up until now. So he's, he's defining this, these terms of what it is to be a child of God. Uh, verse 3, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And his commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God becomes, overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And then it explains that some more for the next five or six verses. And I want us to skip down to verse 12 where it says, he who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son does not have the life. So we've been talking about faith matters. We've been talking about the life of faith. And, and we're defining here, God is defining for us, what is that life? What does it look like? It means that we keep his commandments. It means that we love one another. 
it means that because we are children of God, we have a different life within us, the life of faith. Verse 13, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which have been asked from him. It's an amazing um, process that, that John takes us through here. He talks about how if we actually become believers, then we really become followers of Christ. And then the love of God dwells within us. And when that is true of us, we have this access to God in prayer so that we can ask him whatever we want to ask him. And if we ask according to his will, he not only hears us, but grants what we're asking for. And so this gets us to this subject of prayer. What does it look like to come to God with all of these needs, and how are we to lay these needs out before him, and how are we to relate to God in prayer? Because as we've been saying for the last couple of weeks, for a lot of us, even as Christians who have been Christians for a long time, this area of prayer, it just, it remains mysterious. It's just confusing, and we don't really, we, you know, Lord, thank you for the food. Now I lay me down to sleep. I got all that kind of stuff, but, but there are some people, so I hear, who like, who talk to God for hours. There are people who, who even on a Sunday morning, when they come up on the platform, they lead in prayer, and it just flows out of them. It's like they have this connection with God, and I hear it, and I go, wow, I don't have that. When I pray, I just sort of mumble, and I, it seems like 30 seconds feels like three hours, and I go, man, it's only been a minute. It's hard to pray. And so what we're going to be trying to do is figure out how to get our arms around this idea of prayer so that we can we can dispel the myths that knock us off track and get on track with what God says that prayer is all about. And we're going to do that by looking at what is probably the most famous prayer ever prayed and is also probably the most misunderstood prayer anywhere in Scripture. And it's found in Matthew chapter 6, okay? Matthew chapter 6, the most misunderstood prayer in the Bible. And... Uh, Many of you know that Matthew 5, 6, and 7 is those three chapters taken as one all together are known as the Sermon on the what? Mount. The Sermon on the Mount. Jesus goes up on a hillside. There's a huge crowd, and he stands and preaches this sermon, with Matt, which Matthew then records um, on paper and gives us the notes from the sermon, and that's what we get, these three chapters, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, we have this passage beginning in verse 9, that actually has become known as the Lord's Prayer. How many of you have heard of the Lord's Prayer? Raise your hand. Okay. We're going to look at it together. We're going to actually begin it in verse uh, 6, and we're going to go through verse 15. Matthew chapter 6. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then in this way, verse six, uh, verse 9. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. 
For if you forgive others for their transgression, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgression. Now, we're going to spend some time in this, this week and next week. We're going to be tearing this passage apart a little bit, seeing what we can learn about how we come to God. But, but let me begin by just asking you this. Almost everyone raised their hand when I said, how many of you have heard of the Lord's Prayer? And we're not going to test you on this. We're not going to make you do it. But it's common in churches where a lot of times uh, everyone will pray the Lord's Prayer out loud together, right? Have you ever been in a setting where you do that? And there are a lot of churches where that's done every week. It's a part of the liturgy. It's a normal part of the worship service. Everyone say, says the Lord's Prayer. And if you grew up Catholic, then it would be a part of your penance to have to repeat the Lord's Prayer again and again and again. So a lot of us have it memorized. How many of you, not, not, I'm not saying you wouldn't miss a single word, but if we were all going to stand up together and recite it, how many of you think you could get most of it out? Yeah, it's pretty well known. In fact, even if you're not a Christian, you probably know this prayer for the most part. It's the most famous prayer ever recorded. And um, the interesting thing about it, as much as we recite it, as much as we memorize it, as many times as most of us have prayed it in our lives, we need to know something. It was never given to us by God as a prayer to memorize and recite. That was never his plan. You say, well, how do you know his plan? I'll tell you how I know his plan. I'll give you two examples. The first one, is, just leave your finger in Matthew 6, but turn over to the book of Luke, just two books to the right, and go to Luke chapter 11. This prayer that we've recited so many times was not given to us as something to recite. Luke chapter 11, we're going to begin in verse 1. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves also forgive everyone who is indebted to us and lead us not into temptation. It's another version of the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? The interesting thing about this is that it's not the same occurrence. In Matthew chapter 6, when Jesus starts to recite the model prayer, what is he doing when he's, when he's reciting this prayer? He's preaching. He's right in the middle of a sermon, and he says, when you pray, pray like this, and he tells him how to pray. He doesn't even pray the prayer. He just says, pray like this. It's part of his sermon. But in Luke chapter 11, when, when he tells us this version of the, of the Lord's Prayer, what is he doing there? He had gone off to pray. It says he went away to a lonely place to, play, to pray, which is what was his custom, and his disciples would always come looking for him, and whenever they would find him early in the morning, off from everybody else, what would he be doing? Praying. And so this disciple, and it doesn't tell us his name, it doesn't even tell us if he was one of the 12, one of the inner circle, he may not have even been there in, in Matthew when the Sermon on the Mount was done. This disciple comes to him and says, we always see you praying, but you don't pray like the spiritual leaders we have seen. Teach us to pray like you. And he says, okay, when you pray, pray like this. And he gives them this, this other version that's missing two or three lines that the Matthew version has, but basically it's the same thing, isn't it? 
but it takes place in a different occasion. Neither case is it a prayer that he is praying and saying we should memorize it and recite it. In both cases, he's giving it as a model or an example. And so rather than calling it the Lord's Prayer, we would be better off to call it the model prayer because that's really what it is. And you say, what well, is there anything wrong with reciting it? Well, there's not necessarily anything wrong with reciting it. I don't think we're sinning if we recite the Lord's Prayer. But let's go back to what we already read in Matthew chapter uh, 6 and verse 7. Matthew 6, 7. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. Don't just meaninglessly repeat prayers, he says. When you pray, it's not about getting the right words out. And I just have to be so clear about this because there's so much bad teaching about this right now going around in Christian circles. There's so many people who are teaching that the key to getting what you want in prayer is to use the right words. And you have to pray with faith and you have to pray consistently. And if you do that with the right words and the right amount of faith and the right consistency, then God is bound to give you what you ask for. And and I've been trying to dispel that rumor all this time. That's not what prayer is about. It's not about memorizing the right words and using the words that have power and praying with enough faith and repeating it often enough. In fact, how many of you could admit that out of all these times of praying the Lord's Prayer, that you've been in rooms where you're standing up in a worship service or something and everybody is reciting the Lord's Prayer and you get done and say amen and you haven't really given any thought to what the words of the prayer meant? very common. We have to be really careful with this. So instead, what he's saying is, I want to teach you what prayer is about. I want to teach you how to approach your father in prayer. I want to teach you sort of a model, a foundation for prayer. It's not a pattern to follow. I mean, it is a pattern to follow. It's not a prayer to recite. And so I, I hopefully that's really clear. As we get into it, there's a couple of presuppositions you need to get straight. First of all, when he gives us this model prayer, he's assuming our personal relationship with God. We're in Matthew chapter 6. Go back to verse 9. He says, pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven. Our Father. He says, he's giving us a prayer for those who are praying to their Father. And as I said earlier on, Not all of you, not every person in the world has their face on God's cell phone so that when they call, he drops everything and listens to them. It says you have to be his child. Now, again, this is a complex situation. I'm not saying that God literally doesn't hear, doesn't know when somebody is praying that doesn't know him. And I know that when a person prays a prayer of faith, he immediately responds to that, right? He's the one that gave them the faith to believe in the first place. I'm not saying that unbelievers are just off of God's radar. What I am saying is that you as a follower of Jesus have access to him that nobody else has apart from Christ. It's an incredible thing. Our Father. We're all made in his image, but we're not all his children. The second thing I want you to notice about this is that as you go through the model prayer, all of the pronouns referring to people are plural. I don't know if you've ever noticed that before. I I don't know if I've ever heard anybody teach on this. But the fact of the matter is, as you go down and look at it, our Father who's in heaven, 
Um, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. You say, well, so what? What's the big deal about the pronouns? Here's the big deal. In Western culture, everything begins with me. It's all about the individual in our society, in our culture. And there's everything in our culture is built around individual rights, individual freedoms, individual opportunities, individual everything. And the thing to understand is it hasn't always been that way. And to this day, it is not that way in most of the world. If you're in the Eastern Hemisphere, people don't think of themselves as individuals first. They think of themselves as part of their group first and individuals second. And what we sometimes forget when we're reading the Bible, because we think, you know, America is a Christian nation. I mean, Jesus, after all, came to Kansas, didn't he, or something like that? No, the Bible is not a Western book. The Bible is an Eastern book. And there are certain things that are just taken for granted by the readers and the writers of the scriptures that, that come from an Eastern mindset about how our lives are. And one of them is that we're defined first and foremost by our group. This is why in so many places in the world, when some person in a family does something shameful, the whole family is shamed, right? Oftentimes, the whole family has to pay a penalty when someone does something that is illegal or shameful, right? This is why in, in Asian culture, it is so common for there to be so much shame in, in whatever the situation could be a child who gets a bad grade on a report card, and the whole family is shamed because of it. Or it could be uh, a father and a husband gets fired from his job, and the whole family is ashamed because of it. Or it could even be a nation has something happen where there was, like, say, maybe a terrorist who comes from a certain nation, and the whole nation is ashamed because of it. We don't think that way in America. We just think as individuals. And I want us to begin to realize for the sake of understanding prayer, that it is not just an individual thing. We talk about how Jesus forgives my sins. We talk about how Jesus is my friend. We talk about how Jesus hears my prayers. And all of that is true, but that is not the whole story. Jesus actually relates to us. And we need to understand this as the body of Christ. We, when was the last time, for instance, as we just read that model prayer, and it says, forgive us our debts. When was the last time in your prayer life you were confessing sin? Hopefully you do that as a part of your prayer life. When was the last time in your prayer time you were confessing sin and you confessed on behalf of someone else? A sin that you didn't commit, they committed. See, that's the most foreign idea in the world to us. We would never think of doing that, but that's exactly what it says here. Forgive us our debts. Now, let me unpack this just a little bit more because in our society today, you can see why this is so important. Isn't it true, like for instance, right now in the news, the last several weeks, the whole scandal with the Duggar family, right? Everybody's heard about this and the guy who is a well-known Christian and an activist for family values, all that kind of stuff. It turns out he has a whole secret past and a whole secret story about, about being unfaithful to his wife and all that kind of stuff, right? And it's been all over the media. It's on the regular news. It's on your Facebook feed. It's on the Twitter sphere. It's everywhere. You can't get away from it. And 
And, and as you looked at it and you heard about that or just picked any other scandal involving any other Christian, some pastor who messed up or somebody who ran off with money or the church secretary or whatever this story is, just think of it and ask yourself, when you thought of it, when you heard about it, was your first thought to say, I need to go to God in prayer and confess on behalf of the body of Christ that we, this is just indicative of who we are as the body of Christ, that we don't take our faith seriously enough, that it's so easy for us to be hypocrites. When was the last time you cried out to God and said, oh God, we are so hypocritical, forgive us. We don't even think that way. And yet, in this model prayer, Every single pronoun relates to all of us. It's a whole different way of thinking. We are, we are created to be one body, to bear one another's burdens, and to stand together as a witness for Christ. Not the point of the message, but a point well taken, an important point. In this Western culture, it's just not the way we think about it. Well, we, it's a presupposition that you're a child of God if you're praying this prayer. It's a presupposition that you're a part of the body of Christ and that you take that seriously. But then as we get to verse 9, pray that in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. How many of you use the word hallowed in your conversations this week? Probably not many of us, right? What does it mean? I don't know. It's a word in the Lord's Prayer, right? What does hallowed mean? holy, sanctified, lifted up, glorified. It has all of that. It's the idea that his name is the name above every name, that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The name of Jesus is the name above all names. Our God is above all of his creation. It's the Bible calls him the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of gods, right? He's everything. He's He's pristine. He's premier. He is over everything. His name should be honored. It should be lifted up. It should be glorified. And before we begin tearing apart this um, passage and looking at this model prayer and applying it to our lives as people who pray, I want us to begin to think in the terms that Jesus is expecting us to think in, that our lives exist to glorify God's name. He would not call us to pray and ask God to, to have his name lifted up and glorified if he wasn't also calling us to live in such a way that God's name will be glorified in our very lives, in our very families, in our very communities, in our churches, in our nations, that God's name would be glorified. It's priority one for God. And it doesn't matter really where you go. You could go Old Testament, New Testament, Genesis to Revelation. You just open the Bible and stick your finger in, I guarantee you won't have to read very many verses before you come to the teaching that is either given directly or implied that we exist to glorify the name of God. That's it. So if you want to know why you're put on this earth, you've got a purpose, and it's a very high purpose. Your purpose is to hallow the name of God, to lift him up, to glorify him. And that's not just empty words in a prayer, because the scripture tells us how to glorify God's name. And it gives us some very specific examples. In fact, go to the book of John. Again, keep your finger in Matthew, but go to the book of John, the gospel of John, not 1 John, but John, just three books to the right, John chapter 17. And in John chapter 17, we're going to pick it up in verse 20 where Jesus is actually praying. 
This is not just a model prayer. This is Jesus praying, and he's praying on behalf of his followers. And here's what he says, beginning in verse 20, to God. He says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, meaning his, his uh, immediate disciples, but for those also who believe in me through their word. So he's praying specifically not just for his, his followers at the time, but for everyone who will believe in him because of their testimony. Now, who's that? It's us. We are the ones who believe through their testimony. So what he's saying is, I am praying for my followers today and forevermore. You want to know what Jesus is praying for you? This is the prayer. This is what Jesus prays for you. Um, in verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of, those, of these alone, but also for those who believe, through me, uh, believe in me through their word that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Our unity exalts the name of God. Verse 22, the glory which you have given me, I have given to them, my followers, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and love me, even and love them, even as you have loved me. How is the world going to know that Jesus is actually Lord? How is the world going to know that God's name should be lifted up and glorified? How is the world going to stop, take our eyes for just a moment off of our flashing screens and all the tinkling things that get our attention? And put our eyes upon God and in awe and wonder fall on our faces before him. How is that going to happen? It's going to happen, he says, as my followers are unified. As they become one. This is a huge, gigantic deal to God. If God's name is going to be recognized for what it is, if he's going to be glorified for who he is, part of what is going to bring that about will be when his followers begin to unify. Now, guys, this, if, you, if you want something to confess on behalf of the whole body of Christ tomorrow in your prayer time, start here. We're not very united, are we? But you, it's hard to find a local congregation that is united. But then to think of the whole body of Christ universally and, and to think, what are we known for? We're known for judgmentalism and, and fighting with each other. <laughs> He said, they'll know me, they will know that I am God by your love for one another, by your unity with one another, by the way that you live, the way that I live. You know, Jesus was known as a friend of what? Sinners. And we are often known as judges of sinners and people who are friends with nobody. And as Christians, we have decided, many of us, that we would rather spend our time, our energy, and our focus arguing with one another about minute details of theological difference than we would rather do that than to put our arms together and march as one to pray for this nation, to show, um, to show a united front and say, we stand for the name of Jesus Christ. And we, and we wonder, how come our evangelism programs and all our ideas don't seem to be changing this world? How come, you know, praise God, I don't know if any of you have been to the Harvest Crusade this weekend, but the, the Anaheim Stadium just filled with tens of thousands of people. I heard 45,000 people last night and almost 5,000 came forward to make some sort of a commitment to Jesus Christ publicly. 
I think it's an amazing thing, right? Praise God for what he's doing. But how is it that Greg Laurie is going around having his crusades and Billy Graham and those that, uh, and Franklin Graham go around doing their crusades and all of these preachers are all over and people by the thousands are accepting Jesus and yet our world is becoming less and less like Christ. The church is becoming less and less influential, influential in this world. Why is that? I believe that a whole big part of it is that somehow we're way more interested in our little details of nuance than we are in actually uplifting the name of Jesus Christ. And, and church, Christians, whoever's hearing this voice on the internet or on, on your iPod or whatever, listen, we need to repent. If we are not going to be unified in Christ, what on earth can we be unified in? Jesus is the whole deal. Now, does it matter that we have theological differences? Of course it does. Are these important questions? Of course they are. Is it okay to be in a church that believes one way about speaking in tongues and there's a church down the street who believes another way? Yes, that's perfectly okay. We don't have to all pretend like we agree on everything, but we need our agreement on Christ to be so profound and so impactful that it is the one thing that shines above everything else. We don't have to argue about all these pittance things when we could be lifting up the name of Jesus. And he says, the world will glorify the Father when they see us loving one another, and we need to change. So our unity is one example of how we bring glory to the name of God. Another is just our, our behavior, our morality, and our good deeds. You, you know, we've, we, we go to great lengths in the Christian church to say, listen, it's not about good deeds. It's not about religious works. It's not about being more moral than the next person. That's not how you get into heaven. Did anybody say amen to that? Amen, right? It's all by grace. It's not by your works. But once you are saved, your works should change. Once you actually have a saving relationship with Jesus, you should begin to look different than people who don't know him. And if they're looking at you and they're saying, your gospel makes no sense to me, what they may actually be saying is, your life makes no sense to me because you preach one way and you live another way. And the story has been told many times about the man who said, stop preaching at me because the way you live is so loud, I can't hear what you say. Our morality and our good deeds, they matter. Go to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Behold, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from, to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that in the things in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. What is he saying? He's saying if you're a Christian, people are going to slander you. People are going to mock you. People are going to have a negative approach to you. That will be true for all of us who really hold up the name of Jesus. At some point, we will experience this, right? He says, that's fine. Let them mock you. But let's not have them mocking you because you actually are a hypocrite. If they mock you, it should be because you live for Jesus. If they mock you, it should be because, you know, you're willing to turn the other cheek. You're willing to forgive. You're willing to give to somebody who might just take advantage of you. You're willing to just keep investing in people. And they look at you and go, what a fool. Let them mock you for that. 
but don't let them mock you because you say one thing and live another way. Your good deeds need to shine before you. In fact, in this very same Sermon on the Mount, just, just maybe three minutes before he said what he said about prayer, he said this, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify who? Your Father in heaven. This is all about God's name being hallowed, God's name being lifted up. And let me just give you a third thing real quick. How do we lift up the name of God? We face life's difficulties with courage. Because I, I don't know whether anybody told you this before you became a Christian. If they didn't, I apologize. Well, the Christian life's not easy. When you're a Christian, it doesn't mean you never get sick. When you're a Christian, it doesn't mean that your spouse will never cheat on you. When you're a Christian, it doesn't mean you'll never have to face bankruptcy because no matter how hard you work, your business just simply fails. When you're a Christian, it doesn't mean that you'll be given all these promotions and everything will be wonderful and you'll have health, wealth, and prosperity all the time. If anybody told you that's what it was to be a Christian on their behalf and on behalf of God's church, I apologize because that is not what the Word of God teaches. The Word of God says that everyone who lives in Christ will face trials. That's what it says. The question is not whether you're going to face trials. The question is how you're going to face those trials. I want to give you an example from Scripture. It's in uh, the Gospel of John, back to the book of John, verse uh, chapter 21. And as you're turning there to John 21, let me um, set the scene for you. This is after the resurrection of Jesus. This is the very end of John's gospel. And he's already told us all about Peter and how Peter swore he would never deny Christ, but then he denied him anyway. And now, here is Peter, after the resurrection, afraid to face Jesus. Look what Jesus says to Peter. John chapter 21, verse 19. Uh, verse, uh, start in verse 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grew old, when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will gird you and bring you to where you do not wish to go. Now he said this signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. He restores Peter. He forgives him for his denials. And then he says this, I have a great ministry for you. You're going to need to follow me. But if you follow me, they're going to lead you off. They're going to tie you up. And they're going to lead you to a place that you do not wish to go. And he's speaking about his death, which, by the way, was by crucifixion. And when Peter was crucified, he made one request. He said, I am not worthy to be killed as my Lord. Please crucify me upside down. And they crucified him upside down, hanging upside down on a cross. That's how Peter died. And when Peter heard this, his response, if you go on reading John 21, was he looked at John, the apostle, and he said, what about him? Jesus goes, you're going to die for me. And he goes, what about him? And Jesus goes, what business is it of yours if I want him to live forever? You follow me. And my friends, from that day forward, as best we can tell from Scripture, Peter did exactly that with courage, with resolve, dignity, with faith, he followed Jesus even to the point of death on a cross. If we're going to be serious about this life of faith, we're going to have to be willing to follow Jesus with all of our heart. 
And so as we wrap it up today, I just want to remind you that this is not just about giving you a way to pray. This is about talking about how do we relate to God and align our lives with the will of God. We're going to keep talking about it next week. We're going to dig some of this out of the model prayer, and hopefully our lives will be changed because of it. Amen? Let me invite you to stand up.